Well, to speak this morning on the subject of my prayer for you, I think I have to start by saying I pray for you all the time. Rarely does a day go by when I'm so preoccupied and so busy and swamped with other things that I don't stop to spend some time in prayer for either all of you or a few of you or one of you or two of you, some of you. You're on my heart continually, have been through the summer as well. Whenever I have occasion to be involved in a prayer meeting with other folks, it's very often my privilege to encourage them to pray with me for you, that God would continue to work His work in your heart and in your life. You have to understand that I take the responsibility of being the president of this college very seriously. When I was talking to the parents of the freshmen and the new students uh, a week or so ago, I shared with them that I see this responsibility as a stewardship which I have before God, for which I must give an account. You remember in Hebrews 13, it says that we do what we do, and we have to give an account to God. And that is the way it is. I'm accountable to the Lord in great measure for you and your spiritual growth and your spiritual strength and what you learn. And so it's a great burden to me that God has given me, and I I want to discharge that burden in great measure through prayer, because only the Lord's power can make the difference that He wants to make in your life. In thinking about the very specific things that I would pray for for you. I was drawn to Ephesians chapter 1, and I want you to take your Bible, if you will, and you always want to bring it to chapel. I'm sure you have it with you. Ephesians chapter 1, and then over in chapter 3, and I want to borrow from the Apostle Paul's prayer, if I can. There are two great sections in Paul's prayer for the Ephesians here. The Ephesians were the fruit of his labor, the fruit of his ministry. He had a tremendous burden for them. He prayed for them continuously, unceasingly, because of his concern. And if you, if you look at the things that he prayed for, you can get your hand precisely on the things that I would pray for for you. They come into two categories, all right? And those are the two things I want to mention to you in the brief time we have this morning. First, he prayed for their enlightenment. And secondly, he prayed for their enablement. In other words, first of all, he prayed that they would know what they needed to know. And secondly, he prayed that they would do what they needed to do. The first thing had to do with their discernment, their comprehension. The second had to do with their behavior and their conduct. Let's look at the first part of his prayer for them, which deals with their enlightenment, starting in verse 15 of chapter 1. You follow along as I read, all right? For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And here he tells what he's praying for that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling and what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Now, the first element of his prayer is that he prays that we would have wisdom. 
and knowledge and understanding and enlightenment and illumination. Notice back in verse 15, he begins by affirming something. He says, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. The first thing he says in my prayers is thanks. And what I thank God for is your salvation. I thank God that your faith in Jesus Christ is real. And I thank God that it's evident by your love of the brethren. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in John 13? He said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. And he was speaking of love. If you have love one for another. So first of all, he says, I'm thankful that your faith is real and it's made evident in your love for one another. And I have to say the same to you as I pray for you. The first part of my prayer is a prayer of thanks because you've been set apart unto God, because you've come by faith to know the Lord Jesus Christ through His grace. Your sins have been forgiven. You're on your way to glory. You manifest that new life in Christ by love of the brethren. And I thank God for that. But beyond that, notice his petition, his continuing prayer in verse 17. And this is my prayer that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Now, what he's talking about here is spiritual wisdom. A spirit here, not talking about the Holy Spirit, not talking about some human spirit, but he's talking about an attitude, an attitude, a disposition. You could even say a sense of wisdom and revelation. In the knowledge of him. The word knowledge here is deep knowledge. I want you to have a deep knowledge of divine things. That's why you're here. That's why uh, you go to a Bible class and you hear about the deep things of God. That's why you may go to a science class and you will study science in relationship to the Creator God. And therefore you'll learn more about His character. That's why you go to a history class and as you study history, you see it not from the viewpoint of atheistic, secular, humanistic evolution, but you see it from the perspective of the divine. You see it, as it were, through the eyes of God's revelation so that you can perceive man and his behavior and the issues of human life from the perspective of God. We want you to learn to think spiritually. We want you to learn to have divine wisdom and insight and understanding and to comprehend all things in the light of the revelation of God so that you never disassociate those things. And so the Apostle Paul says, it's my prayer for you that you would have illumination, enlightenment, spiritual wisdom, that you would grasp all divine things and see them from the perspective of God's revelation. And what he has in mind here is a full, deep kind of knowledge of God, not what comes from intellectual ability, but what comes from the gracious working of the Holy Spirit. Intellectual ability is only one very small component in gaining spiritual knowledge. It helps to have some intellectual ability, and you wouldn't be here if you didn't have some. You have enough to grasp the things that need to be grasped in the intellectual human world. But what you also have is the indwelling Holy Spirit who transcends what your mind can grasp and can give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the deep knowledge of God. That will not be limited by your SAT score. That will not be limited by your GPA. That will not be limited by your IQ. That is spiritual perception. 
And so Paul says, first of all, I'm praying for you to know the deep things of God. And that is my prayer for you, young people. Believe me, that is my consuming prayer, that you would know the deep things of God. Everybody lives out his theology. We never live higher than that which we believe. Our belief system controls our conduct. It directs our life. And if you do not understand and comprehend and firmly believe the deep things of God, then your life will run amok. And so we start with that point. Now, there are three things that Paul says I want you to understand in specific. The first thing is the greatness of God's plan. Look at verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart, and we're not talking about your intellect here, but we're talking about your spiritual perception, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. This is an absolutely fantastic statement. The first thing you need to know and learn is the greatness of God's plan. I want you to grasp the greatness of God's plan. And how does he describe it? He calls it the hope of his calling. Now, let me just briefly touch on this. What does he mean by that? The calling of God is election. You know that word, predestination. The calling of God is that act of God by which, before the world began, he predetermined to redeem you. Okay? That is God's purpose. That is his calling. And in the New Testament, every time you ever see the word calling, it is always what theologians call an effectual, redeeming, or saving calling. It is never anything less than that in the epistles of the New Testament. And so he is saying, I pray that you would understand that you are saved and you belong to God because he called you. He called you before the foundation of the world that you should be in Christ and bound for an eternal hope. That's the hope of your calling. And then further, he says, it ends up in the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. In eternity past, listen to this, God called you so that in eternity future you could inherit his glory. That's the greatness of his plan. The glorious, eternal riches, the marvelous magnitude of the blessings of salvation to be received in heaven by you were set in motion in eternity past. He's saying, I hope you grasp that. I hope that you understand that the eternal destiny of your life was ordained in eternity by God who had predetermined to set his love upon you when you were not worthy and didn't deserve it and weren't even in existence and deemed out a plan that would eventually redeem you in time so that he could set you on a path for eternal glory and eternal inheritance. Paul says, I pray that you'll grasp that. I'll pray that you weren't just, that you don't think you were just tripping down life's trail someday and you tripped over Jesus Christ and became a believer and all sort of fell in the gravy. I hope you understand that you're living out something that God put in motion before the world began. And He predetermined that someday you would inherit glory. Say, so why does He want them to understand that? Because that is the substance of a grateful life. When you think about the doctrine of election, when you think about the fact that God has chosen you from before the foundation of the world, that is the most pride-crushing doctrine in the Bible. That devastates your pride, that God has chosen you. It's a staggering thought, for you and I are all unworthy, as are all men. It is also the most God-exalting doctrine because it gives Him all the glory and all the credit. 
It is the most joy-producing doctrine because the only hope you have of salvation is that God in Christ called you, and if He hadn't called you, you would have no hope, and that should produce your greatest joy. It is the most privilege-granting doctrine because it brings to you unspeakable eternal benefits. It is the most holiness-producing doctrine because you would be holy, wouldn't you, out of sheer gratitude? And it is the most strength-giving doctrine because you know if you were chosen before the foundation of the world unto eternal glory and you're on the path to eternal glory in every situation, in every trial, in every temptation, in every persecution, in every failure in life, you're still secure forever, right? This is a phenomenal truth. My prayer for you is that you will grasp the greatness of the plan of God in which you are a part. Secondly, Paul says, I hope you will grasp not only the greatness of his plan, but the greatness of his power. Look at verse 19. He says, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. He just stacks up a whole lot of words there that mean power. Four of them in the Greek. Power, working, strength, might are all just different words for power. And he says, I want you to be able to be enlightened and illuminated and have spiritual wisdom to understand what a powerful person you are. And again, we're not talking about your powerful personality, your powerful intellect. We're not talking about that. We're talking about divine power. What kind of power is it? Verse 20 tells us. The same power which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Resurrection power dwells within the believer. And also ascension power, the same power that lifted him up as he ascended into heaven to take his seat at the right hand. That's living with a wide open throttle, I would say, wouldn't you? Having that kind of power. We need to realize the mighty power that God has placed within us. We realize His plan and our place in it. We realize His power, the same power that raised Jesus Christ, dwells within us. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He has come and we have that power. Power for victory over sin, power for witnessing, power for service and all of that. Third thing. Paul says, I pray that you will understand the greatness not only of His plan and His power, but the greatness of His person. Verse 21, and I want to read this to you because we didn't read it earlier. Speaking of Christ, he says, He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All that grandiose talk is simply to say Jesus Christ is the supreme being in the universe, right? He is supreme. He is far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. And those are categories of angelic beings. He is above every name that is named in this age or in any other age to come. And everything in existence is under His feet, that is, under His authority. He is the head over the church, which is His body. Christ is all in all. Christ is sovereign. Christ is supreme. And what He's really saying is, I hope that you will comprehend who it is that lives in you, right? Your body is the dwelling place of Christ. He has taken up residence in you. And with His residence comes majesty, and with His residence comes might. 
This is the supreme person of the universe, and you've been joined to him. And 1 Corinthians 6 says, he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. You are one with Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul even goes on to say, if you join yourself to a harlot, you've joined Christ to the harlot because you're inextricably tied together. So my prayer for you, young people, isn't for something more. I'm not asking God to give you something more while you're here. I'm not asking God to add to you. I'm not asking God to develop some kind of new thing for you. I'm only asking, first of all, that you would understand what you already have. First of all, you're a part of an unbelievable plan set in motion in eternity past to be fulfilled in eternity future, and God predetermined that you would be in that plan and you would receive eternal glory. Secondly, you are a part of a great power, the greatest power the world has ever seen that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you, and you are linked with a great person, the greatest person in the universe who lives within you. And if you can, along the way during your time here, grasp the reality of that, you're well on your way to living an illuminated Christian life. I want you to understand those things. I want you to be able to get to grasp them as much as the human mind is possible. Because when you understand the great plan that you're a part of, it's going to make you so grateful and so thrilled and so joyful and so content because you know the future is secure because of the past plan of God. And when you grasp the great power that is in you, you're going to stop being a victim and you're going to be a victor and you're going to be a super conqueror and there's no temptation that you're not going to see the way out and the victory is yours in Christ and there's no enemy including Satan and all of his demons that's going to be able to stand against you. And when you understand the greatness of the person that lives within you, it's going to control and order your holy life because you're not going to link that person up with unholy behavior. So we begin by what you know, and it's a prayer for enlightenment. Let's go to chapter 3. Just very briefly to look at the second part of Paul's prayer. This is a prayer for enablement. Now we move from what you know to how you live. We move from your, from your cognition to your conduct. From what you understand to how you behave. And Paul has a prayer here that is just tremendous. Down in verse 14 of chapter 3, we find him praying. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. That must have been an interesting daily experience for the Roman soldier who was chained to him when he wrote this. And he says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That is the Creator God, the God who created everyone. I bow my knees to God. And what are you going to pray, Paul? I'm going to pray for you. Well, what are you going to pray for? Now, watch this. There are five progressive steps here that are just phenomenal. And they have to do with your divine enablement. First, verse 16, I pray for your inner strength. That's the first point, inner strength. I pray that he, that is God, the Father, would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. That's the first thing he prays. I want you to have a strong inner man. Please notice this, that God grants you according to the riches of his glory. That's a very important phrase. It doesn't say out of the riches, as if God was just giving you a part of what he had, but according to his riches. In other words, there's a tremendous volume available for this strength. 
If I went to a rich man who had multi-millions of dollars and I said, look, I have a personal friend who has a deep need. Uh, he doesn't have the ability to meet this need. I know you have millions of dollars. Could you write him a check? I mean, could you help him? And the guy wrote him a $50 check. I would say he gave out of his riches, but not according to, wouldn't you? If he wrote him a $100,000 check, you'd say, ah, he gave according to his riches or consistent with the volume of what he possesses. And that's how God gives. He doesn't give a pittance, but he gives according to his riches. And what does he give? He gives that we would be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Now, this is the first step, young people, in your enablement. When you come out of the master's college, if it's only what you know, we're in real trouble. Somehow there's got to be a transition from what you know to how you behave if you're going to make an impact on the world. We're not trying to produce people here who make no impact. We're trying to produce people who make major impact. In order to do that, you've got to follow this process, and it all begins with step one. If you're going to be enabled to have an effective Christian life, a dynamic Christian life, it starts with inner strength. That's where it begins. It begins on the inside. Strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. By the way, the inner man is more important than the outer, isn't it? Remember what uh, Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4. He's talking about Abraham and Sarah. And he said uh, regarding women that they were not to be adorned on the outside, but they were to adorn the hidden part of the heart. Always the inner part is the most important. We're familiar with the outer man, right? We feed it, we clothe it, we comb it, we wash it, we do whatever we need to do to fix it up. But the focus here has to be on the inner man. We sang songs this morning that all speak about the inner man. They speak about an attitude of praise, an attitude of confession of sin, an attitude of admission of weakness, an attitude of desiring to be holy. All of that speaks of the inner man. And we are to be strengthened with power by the Spirit in the inner man. Someday through the semester, or in the second semester, we'll talk about the whole matter of, of how we tap into the power of the Spirit in some more detail. But suffice it to say at this point, Ephesians 5.18 says, Be filled with the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 says, Walk in the Spirit. And those are the two key passages. Our life needs to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, you're going to have a strong inner man. 2 Corinthians it should be added. If you're taking some notes, jot down 2 Corinthians 4:16 to 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Paul had the right focus. I look at my outer man and it's decaying. That's not an issue with me. My inner man is being renewed day by day. And that's okay, he says, verse 18, because we look not at the things which are seen, but at things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I have an eternal focus, so I'm concerned about the inner man and not the outer man. I want a spiritual perspective. I want to walk in the Spirit. I want to be filled with the Spirit. I want to be controlled by the Spirit. That's inner strength. Second point, just quickly, verse 17. Second point, he says, so that, now notice, each one of these begins with that, which, which indicates a purpose, sequentially. So it says in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love, etc., etc. Take that little phrase, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's the second step. Started with inner strength, then indwelling Christ. 
The second thing Paul prays for, for his people, and I pray for you, is that you may know the indwelling Christ. You say, now wait a minute, I'm already a Christian, Christ is already there, right? I understand that. So let's explain what this means. See that little phrase, Christ may dwell? That word is katoi kesai in the Greek. It literally means to settle down and be at home. Okay? To settle down and be at home. Now, there are times when you are in your house, but you can't settle down and just be there because there's too much work to do, right? And that's the idea here. Paul says, I want you to have the inner strength of the Holy Spirit so that Christ can settle down and be at home in your heart and not be up busy doing things to try to fix everything. A number of years ago, a man named Robert Munger wrote a little book called My Heart, Christ's Home, and he illustrates this pretty graphically. Some of you may have read it. He he pictures Christ going into the human heart, and the human heart is like a house. And the first thing Christ does, he walks into the library, and he describes the library as the place where the control room of 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 the whole heart. That's the control room. That's the brain. All the information is in the library. All the data, all the input. And Christ goes through the library and he finds a lot of trash, a lot of garbage. And he says you have to replace this with the Word and with truth and what is holy, just, and good. And then he goes into the dining room and he says the dining room is the place of appetites, longings, desires, compulsions. And there in the dining room, he found a lot of worldly fare, a lot of worldly food, a lot of worldly appetites, a lot of lust. And he said, you have to replace all of this with a desire for the bread of life. And then he went into the living room, and that was the fellowship area. And he found in there friends that pulled the person down. And he found relationships that were illicit and and wrong and even immoral. And he said, you have to have friends in here that would welcome me. And then he went into the workshop of the heart. And in the workshop were all the tools and the skills. And he asked the question, what are you producing with all these tools and all these skills? What are you doing that's going to have lasting value and glory for me? You've got to start to use your skills and your tools and your abilities for my glory. And he got it all cleaned out. Got the library cleaned out. Got the dining room cleaned out. Got the living room cleaned out, got the, the workshop ball cleaned out and straightened up. And Munger says in his little book, and then as Christ was moving toward the front of the house, a terrible stink came into his nostrils. And he said, what's that smell? And the heart said, well, now, wait a minute. Now, you got everything else. That's just one little room that I keep for myself. It was foul. It was like something was dead. And Christ said, I have to have that too, or I can't settle down and be at home. And so he led him to the closet where all the secret sins were. And Christ went in and cleaned out the closet of secret sins, and then he could sit down and be at home. See, that's what Paul prays, is that all the rooms in your house are going to get cleaned out. You start with the Spirit of God filling your life, and then you begin to see Christ settle down and be at at home in your heart because you're dealing with sin. That's the second step. There's a third step here. Incomprehensible love. He says in verse 17, you'll be rooted and grounded in love, and you'll be able to comprehend and, and do so with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Stop at that point. The next thing he says I want for you is a life filled with love. 
I want your life to just be filled with love. By this, as I said, shall all men know that you're my disciples. This is the mark of the true Christian. Doesn't matter what else you do. I don't care if you speak with the tongues of men and angels. If you have not love, your life is like a banging gong, First Corinthians says. The Lord wants love in our lives. Love for Him, love for each other, love for the lost. I want your life characterized by love. It's so important in all of our relationships, young people, because as Peter said, love covers a multitude of what? Sins. Love eliminates bitterness and strife and envy and anger and jealousy. Love eliminates all of that. And so he says, I I want you to have love. I, I know you're not going to be enabled to do any kind of effective spiritual service if you don't have inner strength from the Spirit, if Christ hasn't settled down to be at home in your pure heart and begin to just shed His love out through you in every direction. And this love that we're talking about, by the way, is self-sacrificial service. It's not an emotion. It's a self-sacrificing commitment to seek your good over my own. That's what it is. And then he goes to a fourth thought, a fourth component that's just amazing. Look at it in verse 19. Another that, another purpose. In order that, this is all sequential, in order that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That's an almost mind-boggling statement. What do you mean by that? Well, in verse 16, he said, I want you to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. In verse 17, he said, I want Christ to settle down and be at home in your heart and then fill you with his love. And now he says, I want you to be filled with God. I want you to know the fullness of God. It's an amazing. What do you mean by that? Literally this. I want all of the communicable attributes of God to be characteristic of your life. I want God to live through you. I want you to be God-like. Remember Matthew 5.48, Jesus said, Be ye holy as your Father in heaven is holy. Peter said, Be ye holy again. That's right out of the book of Leviticus. Be ye holy for I am holy. Titus 2.10, Paul says, Adorn the doctrine of God. Psalm 17, David prayed, I'm never going to be satisfied until I awaken your likeness. I want to be God-like. 2 Corinthians 3.18, I want to be transferred from one level of glory to the next, to the next, to the next, becoming more and more like God. There's a path to that. You start with letting the Spirit of God control your inner heart. Then Christ can settle down when there's no more sin there and be at home and fill you with His love. And then the fullness of God becomes your portion. In the last step in verse 20, see what happens. What's the result of this? Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. What a statement. You know what the effect of this is, young people? You show me a person who has inner strength, the indwelling Christ, incomprehensible love resulting in the infinite fullness of God and I'll show you a person who will have internal power that's the fifth point the infinite fullness of God leads to internal power he says you'll have a powerful life how powerful you'll be able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all you can ask or think according to the power that works within us that's where we're headed young people we would like to send you out of this school that powerful able to do beyond what you could even ask or think. Just look at how that verse breaks down. He says God can enable you, if you live like this, to do what you ask. He can enable you to do what you think. 
He can enable you to do all that you ask or think. He can enable you to do beyond all that you ask or think, abundantly beyond all that you ask or think, exceeding abundantly beyond all you can ask or think. That's a pretty amazing statement, isn't it? That's the kind of person we want you to be. That's the kind of person I pray you'll be, according to His power working in you. And there's one footnote. All that's not for your glory, verse 21 says. Whose glory is it for? To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. If you live like this, guess what? You bring glory to God. And that's the reason you exist. What's my prayer for you? Enlightenment. That you might understand the greatness of God's plan of which you're a part. That you might get a grip on the greatness of the power that lives within you and the greatness of the person with whom you're linked. And then my prayer for you is for your enablement, that you might by inner strength and the indwelling Christ and incomprehensible love experience the infinite fullness of God, which leads to internal power so that you live to the glory of God and He gets glory from your life. That was Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. I certainly couldn't come up with one that's even close to that. And I hope, too, that that's your prayer. Paul prayed it for the Ephesians. I'm sure he wanted them to pray it for themselves. I pray it for you. I want you to pray it for one another. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you this morning for the Word which is alive and powerful. Even though it was written nearly 2,000 years ago, it's alive and powerful, and your Holy Spirit quickens it to our hearts. I do pray for these young people. I pray for their enlightenment. It's so important that they know the deep truths, the great truths, the majestic realities that are theirs because of Christ. And it's so important also, Lord, that they know how to live so that they can be powerful, so that they can make a difference in the world and bring you glory. Enlighten us all, Lord. And enable us all to be everything you want us to be. We pray in the name of our Savior. Amen.